Greetings, friends and well-wishers. I'm going to do a very casual compare and contrast of two rallies I attended on Sunday, March 6th, 2022. Uh, One rally I did intend to attend, and the other one I just attended inadvertently. It was on my walk home from the first rally, and I did not know that it was happening. So um, if that uh, happy accident hadn't occurred, uh, I probably just would have uh, went to the first rally for peace at the Forks, and uh, I wouldn't have been feeling like I needed to get some things off my chest, and I wouldn't have uh, needed to record a a podcast about it. But that did happen, and I was thinking about it, and uh, so now I'm getting my thoughts out there. So uh, listen if you want. If it's not your cup of tea, no problem. We'll have a regular wholesome episode with uh, Jill coming up uh, very shortly again, so uh, stay tuned for that. So yeah, without further ado, these are two rallies related to the Russian war on Ukraine. The first rally was the uh, the Peace Rally organized by the Peace Alliance of Winnipeg and the AUUC, the Association of United Ukrainian Canadians. And I believe the Communist Party had a banner uh, behind the podium area as well. And at least one of the speakers that I saw was a Communist Party member. I didn't see them listed as uh, as official organizers of the event, but uh, they were prominently there. You could like consider these sort of like the legacy organizations of uh, of the left. They're like the uh, this is the old guard. There's some young people uh, mixed in with them, and I get the sense just from an outsider's perspective that Peace Alliance. AUUC and the Communist Party have uh, a bit of uh, share some personnel. So everything that you're going to get with that type of arrangement situation was sort of on display at this rally. You have the old guard, old axes to grind, so speakers talking about things that were frankly just completely irrelevant. Even at times, sometimes like a surprising, like veering off away from like class politics and class solidarity and just focusing on the uh, actions of the nation states involved, Russia and Ukraine, and not so much like the regular ordinary people uh, caught up uh, in a war started by Putin and the ruling uh, bureaucracy of Russia. Although there was some of that. One speaker did emphasize the kinship relations uh, between so many people on the Russia and Ukraine side, especially in the border regions. And of course, relationships of kinship take precedence over relationships of uh, nationality or nation state. And in the case of uh, Russia and Ukraine, often there's a gray area with that as well to be aware of. And I'm mentioning all this because if you're like becoming a more like class aware person or or a more like out of the closet leftist and you want a group to join, you'll often go looking for a group to join. And the groups that are on offer are sometimes these uh, these legacy groups. And uh, I'm not going to tell anyone not to join them. For a certain type of person who knows what they're getting into, you could do some good work there. And there's obviously like older people there with lots of experience. And there's there's like a growing uh, youth contingent as well. Uh, but it would be my guess that the that the old guard is still very much uh, in leadership there, and they're kind of bringing their like lingering old Cold War axes to grind along with them as well, and everything that entails. So that's just something to be aware of. But the AUUC does a lot of like uh, Ukrainian cultural stuff. I think I'm not sure 
Um, don't quote me on this, but I think the AUC was involved in starting Folklorama. I could be completely wrong, but I, th- I think I was told that at some point. And they certainly do, uh, do like Ukrainian dance and music programs. It really emphasizes to me, especially when we're going to talk about the next rally, um, just that the left, although the left looks pretty big online and, uh, the right really blows it up in like the whole, uh, culture war discourse thing uh the actual organized left is so small and so rickety and ramshackle and uh, moth-eaten that it's uh that it is functionally irrelevant it was like someone set off a bomb within the working class in the 20th century and uh there's just like dazed survivors wandering around the wreckage or if it was like a like a ship hit by a broadside and there's just you know, people hanging onto onto bits and pieces floating in the water, all kind of like dazed, looking for a lifeboat. These are some of the pieces of that ship <laughs> that survived, uh, and they're in really bad condition at the moment. That's the sense that I get generally. Uh, but still, if you're an awakening leftist and you're looking around at the wreckage of society all around you and you're looking for a lifeboat to climb into... Uh, you're going to climb into the one that's closest at hand, the one that you can swim to. And some of these groups are the lifeboats that you can swim to. They have their problems, obviously. You can be aware of that. But I think, if I'm going to speak like directly to uh, to leftist organizers, is that you can't be picky at this point. And the point is now to get as many people into the lifeboats as possible, because as we'll see again with the next rally, uh, the people who organize the rallies like the next one are very perfectly happy to take them. Uh, organizers of the, of the Freedom Convoy and, and occupations, etc., etc. And just to even like more explicitly give my game away, that uh, workplace organizing and workplace democracy is the forefront of that, where you're going to get people right at the point of awareness of their own clear and indisputable exploitation and oppression by our capitalist system where people are aware that they are getting shoveled into the furnace and ground up in the gears fed through the chipper and thrown onto the compost pile of society that's where everyone knows this we'll have some sort of experience of it that is where we're getting paid to maintain the exact same system that is destroying us uh, destroying our families destroying our communities, destroying our mental health, and destroying our physical health. Even if you work a job that you like, it's generally pleasant, I would bet that at some point in your life you've had this experience, and even at your current job, you kind of know already, even if it's not fully conscious and it's not something that we generally talk about. Same with the more uh, independent professional classes. Even if you're a manager, if you're an HR person, that is explicitly what your job is to uh, obscure these sorts of relations. But we all know that they're real. They're still a bit taboo, but a lot more people are starting to talk about them now. We have to be ready to talk to them uh, when it comes up. That's where people will be coming from. They'll be falling out of that in one sh- one way, shape, or form, being squeezed out of the middle class like toothpaste coming out of a tube. And that's a painful process, and that's going to cause some sort of awareness of what their circumstances actually are. And then at that point, uh, whatever the closest lifeboat is, is where they're going to swim to. And if the closest lifeboat is a right-wing lifeboat, uh, and their friends are already in it, that's where they're going to go. So beggars can't be choosers. 
If you need to grow solidarity, you're going to take what you can get. And the place where most people are is at work, because as you see, most working class people are always working all the time. Two, three jobs, 24-7, evenings, weekends, holidays, the whole bit. That's certainly been the case for me for the majority of my adult life. Even if I can say I was pretty left-leaning uh, right from the get-go, from a very young age, there was no way that I was going to be able to participate in any sort of uh, uh, left-wing club or project or rally or organization, uh, even if I wanted to, because I was always at work when, at the times when these things were happening. I was always working evenings, weekends, and holidays. The first time I was able to, to connect with anything remotely organizy or activisty or left-wingy was when I was able to participate in uh, trainings or workshops uh, put on by my union. My union paid for me to go to these things during work hours, so I would get off shift and go to uh, an all-day training session, and I would get paid for it exactly the same as if I was at work. That's a really good thing, and we desperately need that for more uh, working-class people to get involved with uh, exercising some democratic control over their own lives. The p what you have represented at this small peace rally is a very small amount of people who, who have the luxury of free time to be able to participate in these things, and the money to get to and from there. Uh, the vast majority of working class people don't have free time and they don't have money to contribute to causes or anything like that. So you're going to get a very specific type of person uh, who can attend this uh, sort of um, left-wing organized rally. And that's what you have here. And if it's not being too uncharitable, I would suggest that that's what you have in all uh, leftist organizations, certainly here in Winnipeg or anywhere in North America, is you have a very specific type of person who has the luxury of free time and money to contribute. And if you are that sort of person who has those luxuries, I would suggest that if you want working class people to be able to uh, participate in your group or organization or rally, you may have to offer them some sort of material compensation in order for them to be able to physically attend. Especially if it's some sort of speaking or facilitating role, there is no other way you're going to be able to get a working class person to do it. And I'm speaking personally in my case, because I couldn't afford to take off work to attend a talk or an event or go to meetings. And that my experience is not an outlier, that in fact is the norm for most working class people, and that most working class people are in even worse circumstances than me. Something worth considering, anyway. Uh, you see that here in, in this case, uh, holding, a, holding a rally at the Forks. Uh, at the Forks market, you got loads of workers right there who can't participate in a peace rally. They're at work, they're serving coffee, they're serving brunch, they're uh, hawking uh, tourist wares. So you won't be able to get them out to your peace rally or your Zoom educationals, but you might be able to get them with a podcast or, or something online, something they could listen to or read at work. But getting people engaged right at the site of their own exploitation or oppression, where they spend the vast majority of their time anyway, um, amongst co-workers who are experiencing the exact same thing, I think would be by far the most effective thing to do. And of course, you know, that's where unions come in. And that's a completely... And unions are their own kettle of fish, as we all know. Okay, that's my little spiel about that. Okay, so that uh, that rally at the Forks, that was the Peace Rally. Relatively small. 
I'd estimate between 70 to 100 people around. People with signs calling for peace, end of war, um, notably signs calling for not just the end of Russian aggression, but also the the end of uh, NATO warmongering, uh, that kind of thing. So like uh, things like no, no to Russia and no to NATO and capitalist war was one that's summed it up. It was like a little, uh, a little ramshackle sort of, uh, sort of ch- church picnic, like the sort of thing, the sort of vibe you might get from going to like uh, a mainline Protestant church. You know, like the leaders are kind, they're kind of on the old side. There's young people milling around. You know, a couple people handing out pamphlets. Everyone's just like generally, really, really happy to see you, to see a new face. Or I guess I'm assuming that that would be the attitude. A lot of people were wearing masks and uh, social distancing was uh, definitely happening. Uh, because as all uh, all people living in reality know, th- uh, the pandemic is still happening, uh, despite what uh, our governments say. I'll just say that uh, I thought it was... I thought the crowd had a generally, uh, a generally welcoming and uh, friendly vibe. Um, in the background, this is at the Forks, there's kids, like, tobogganing, uh, there's, like, families going for walks, people skating on the rinks, people doing brunch or, or lunch, uh, at the Forks Market, just, you know, everybody, like, living, living their lives, uh, doing their thing, enjoying the beautiful weather, uh, finally, like, our, uh, winter-long cold snap has, has broken, and we're gonna get, like, the, a nice tail end of a, of a beautiful Winnipeg winter. So that lends to the atmosphere. So after the peace rally, um, they did a little march around the forks with all their signs for peace. Uh, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't go on the march. I decided since it was a really nice day, I was going to walk home. It takes about an hour to walk to uh, my house from the forks, and so I took the the Cinnaboyne River path from the forks, and that roughly parallels uh, Broadway. And the Manitoba legislature is on Broadway. So I was going down the river path behind the legislature. I heard a big crowd shouting and uh, like amplified PA system bouncing off the uh, downtown buildings around it. Music. There's sound like a something like a big party going on in the front. So I walked around the front and was like met by like a sea of blue and yellow uh, Ukrainian flags. This was the big rally um, to most people. Probably the, the rally that they would have heard of. They probably would not have heard of the people rally happening at the forks but this was the ukrainian uh, nationalist rally uh, organized by the ucc the ukrainian canadian congress and they're the ukrainian nationalist group that claims to speak for the entire ukrainian community of canada uh, but they don't the auuc has roots as a working class organization Founded in the early 20th century, there were other Ukrainian working class organizations. There were other working class organizations, period. Um, A lot of them were outlawed or banned outright uh, in the 40s. I assume that's what you'd call like a Red Scare kind of era, where you're you're banning working class groups during the war or post-war. I don't know. Someone might know more than me, but the but the AUUC is is one that remains from that period. Uh, groups like the UCC, it's an amalgamation of a few other um, Ukrainian nationalist groups um, that sort of sucked them all in, and now is like the the big or is claiming to have the monopoly on the on speaking for the Ukrainian community in Canada. Uh, but they don't. You should you should know then. You should pay attention to uh, who's putting out uh, releases, who's being interviewed on on the local news. Uh, is it a representative? of the UCC, perhaps likely it is. 
Uh, but as far as the Ukrainian community in Canada, they're not the only game in town, and uh, they never have been. So, like, whereas the peace rally was calling for peace in Ukraine and, and around the world, the uh, UCC rally was explicitly, this was a warmongering rally, I'll just call it that. This was a right-wing nationalist uh, warmongering rally. Um, if there was like 7,200 people at the peace rally, there was like, I don't know, a thousand people at this one. I'm bad at estimating crowd sizes, uh, but there was a lot more people there, like enough so that when I walked around the corner of the legislature and saw how many people, people there, I was shocked. I had no idea. And like a sea of Ukrainian flags. I mean, like a sea of Ukrainian flags. There was enough that the, uh, the crowd was, was substantial. So even though this was basically like a right-wing, organized, Ukrainian nationalist uh, war-mongering rally, as I said, all the usual caveats apply as to the makeup of the crowd. By no means was uh, everyone in the crowd uh, right-wing uh, nationalist, nor were all the people participating in the program. This is more of a cross-section of society, obviously, Class dictates what type of person is able to attend this sort of rally. It was publicized much more widely. Most people would have heard about this rally if they wanted to head to a rally, they would head to this one uh, without necessarily knowing who's organizing it or really caring. I would say probably the majority of people in the crowd are just like well-meaning people who um, want to stand in solidarity with uh, the Ukrainian people who are suffering under the Russian invasion. Uh, but that said, the makeup of the crowd, uh, regardless, the organizers are who they are. And uh, we'll talk later, like there were explicitly far right elements in the crowd. Like you didn't, you don't have to be a particularly uh, politically aware person to be able to to pick them out and see what's going on there. And the crowd was was amped up. There were chants, a big PA system, lots of speeches, short, fiery speeches, lots of lots of speakers, uh, music, the Ukrainian uh, anthem, by, sung by a Ukrainian men's choir, and it was explicitly calling for the Canadian state to send more money and arms and aid to the Ukrainian state in order to defend uh, the Ukrainian brothers and sisters from the from the evil uh, Putin and and Russian aggression. So their aims were quite clear and it wasn't and they weren't calling for peace they were calling for for an escalation of conflict to escalate the conflict to defeat a clear uh, a clear evil aggressor and that's a much different uh, message and feeling uh, than calling for peace especially when you aggregate it into a crowd of like around a thousand people that that feeling that energy that energy is is palpable and menacing like it's it's an aggressive energy uh it was my first right-wing uh nationalist war rally and yikes let me tell you these things are something else uh it's uh it's scary People are angry. And I understand if you're a person of Ukrainian heritage that you would be angry about this. Obviously, um, there is a literal war going on. You you might have family members in a war zone, in a war zone, in a war that they never asked for and never wanted. And it's just like thrust upon them and ruining their lives. Maybe maybe they're even uh, fighting. Who knows? Like, this is a real war. Like, people are dying. There's airstrikes. There's artillery attacks. Civilians are getting killed. It's just like war is a disaster, like we said before. It's always a disaster. It's always a racket, and regular people are just destroyed by it. And one of the things, one of the groups that profits from this sort of destruction are uh, right-wing nationalist groups. 
You can see it in Ukraine. You can see it in Russia. You can see it in Canada right now. We've seen it in the States, and we've seen how that plays out uh, in the Middle East, notably like uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. The thing that will bind people together uh, in in these conditions, when there's a lack of uh, class awareness, will be nationalism. And that nationalism will be intentionally stoked by the powers that be. And uh, it's being stoked by uh, the government here in Manitoba and Canada to an incredible degree. And to what ends, uh, you want to ask? We're, we're shipping weapons to Ukraine? At the same time that we've been shipping weapons to Saudi Arabia to uh, propagate their war on the Yemeni people that uh, many are calling genocidal. I think it's, uh, I think we're shipping weapons to Saudi Arabia illegally. So we're talking about like nation states and and shipping weapons to different nations. That's an extremely dicey uh, proposition. It might seem like sending weapons to Ukraine is is a morally justified one. Given the circumstances, I don't know, I can't see a near future where the Ukrainian people or the Russian people are going to benefit from uh, escalating and prolonging a pointless war. Uh, for what reason? What What are the tangible outcomes? Uh, what is most likely to happen from this? We have to keep in mind, we live in a capitalist global system. Russia is capitalist, as well as Canada, as well as the US, as well as Ukraine. There's no, like... There's no communism going on here. Every one of these transactions has to have uh, a little profit margin tacked onto it. This is not altruistic. It's not being given for free. And Ukraine was suffering under like an incredible national debt even before this happened. Uh, do you think these weapons are being given to the Ukrainian state for free? And then once they're getting to the Ukrainian state, who are they going to? Uh, these are questions we have to ask. It's not, it's not pro-Russia or anti-Ukrainian to ask them. Canada has a weapons manufacturing industry. We're shipping Canadian-made weapons all over the world, not just to Ukraine. We can't forget that. And the rich people in Canada who own Bombardier stock or whatever it is, whatever the company is that manufactures the armored personnel carriers or whatever that we ship out there, the board of directors for these types of companies, they have a personal interest in escalating and prolonging this war because it means there's going to be more of a demand for their product. The nationalism part of it just gets like glommed on later as part of a marketing campaign to get the masses on their on their side and to sell more war products and to distract from very obviously increasingly worsening conditions at home that are uh, driving people insane and driving people down in, into the dirt. And marketing this war is really easy in Canada. Canada has the largest uh, Ukrainian diaspora in the world. There's more Ukrainians living in Canada than anywhere else outside of Ukraine. And the majority of those people, I would hazard to guess, uh, live on the prairies, in Manitoba and on the prairies. So drumming up public support for uh, escalation of of war, especially when Canadian uh, companies can profit off of war, contributes even more to an already exceptionally dangerous and volatile uh, situation where the conditions for the far right to grow are already in place, where we've seen it already in the Freedom Convoy. Stoking the fires of Canadian-Ukrainian nationalism will only make those conditions worse. And that's why holding on to these nationalist ties for countries that you don't live in and may not have lived, your families might not have lived in there, lived there for generations. You might not have a living family member who, who lived there. It's not wrong to say that the idea of a modern nation-state is relatively new uh, on the stage of history, and that includes our country, that includes the United States. 
and that includes the modern nation-state of Ukraine and the modern nation-state of Russia. Like, the modern nation-state of Russia isn't the Soviet Union, and it's not the uh, Russian Empire that preceded it. These are different things. That's not to say that uh, Ukrainian ethnicity doesn't exist, and that Russian ethnicity doesn't exist, and that they don't have uh, distinct and unique, yet very intertwined, uh, histories. And that also isn't to say that uh, nationalism, in the case of uh, asserting the sovereignty of an occupied indigenous people, such as the Palestinians or um, indigenous people in North America, isn't worthwhile or valid. It most certainly is. But the stoking of, of nationalist sentiments to goad people into supporting wars between nation-states which don't represent uh, the majority of ordinary people within those countries is uh, is a mistake. The working class isn't contained by national boundaries. National boundaries are drawn through the working class. Uh, the working class is international and, and it's global, and uh, most of it's in the developing world, the global south, and most of it isn't white or European-derived. The class nature of the pro-war rally was evident in the in the people who spoke specifically in that you had uh, members of both the provincial conservative party and the federal liberal party all uh, speaking on the same platform and delivering the same pro-war message like aren't liberals and conservatives supposed to hate each other i mean if we consider ourselves conservatives or liberals like aren't we supposed to think the liberals are do trying to do actual communism and aren't we supposed to think the conservatives are doing literal fascism why would they both be uniting together to uh say the same thing at a uh, at a right-wing nationalist rally we know from previous episodes we can use our we can use our class consciousness tool they have the same class interest uh, what is their uh, what's their class they're members of the capitalist class so uh and the interest of the capitalist class is profit that's why we're sending arms to ukraine that's why we send personnel carriers to saudi arabia when everyone agrees that saudi arabia is bad but that's called war profiteering and i've said it a few times but that's what we mean when we say that war is a racket and rallies like this and uh pro-war media are the ways that uh they get ordinary people to go along with this plan and that's pretty reprehensible and dangerous we should be able to be aware of this and recognize it and to talk about it with people around us i'm old enough to remember 9-11 and the lead-up to the afghanistan and iraq wars i was uh in my late teens or maybe early 20s uh at that time uh so i was very aware of what was happening and uh some of the feeling at this uh pro-war nationalist rally was very similar to the warmongering that was going on uh, at that time 20 years ago as an aside does anyone else remember when uh after 9-11 when george bush went on tv and he told americans that the best thing that they could do to help their country was to go shopping i still rem remember that 20 years ago even then i wasn't super politically aware but i was like huh that sounds really weird and wrong every we all remember this right um, we also probably remember how um, liberals and conservatives of all stripes banded together to um, whip uh, Americans and even Canadians up into uh, into a frenzy about getting uh, revenge for 9-11. Somehow that led to the Afghanistan war and then somehow that led to the Iraq war. And that was pretty bipartisan. 
in times of social crisis, especially war, liberals and conservatives band together, they don't represent differing class interests. They represent uh, different facets of the same class interest, the same capitalist class interest. And I think by now you can probably lump the NDP in with them too. Uh, there's very little working class influence uh, in the NDP anymore. So like all the analysis in the mainstream media that people older than me usually pay t attention to and uh, all the uh, all the hot and serious takes by uh, professional online intelligentsia types, um, that's all just basically squabbling amongst family members, uh, family members of the capitalist class. There's very little uh, uh, working class influence in uh, any of these areas. Okay, moving on. Um, one of the liberal MPs who spoke announced the federal government's plan to take in an unlimited number of Ukrainian refugees fleeing the war. I'd say that's a good thing. I'd also say that's the bare minimum uh, that uh, we could do. Uh, I'm also reminded that every year we have families trying to cross the U.S.-Canadian border here in Manitoba on foot in the middle of winter, often lacking uh, proper clothing. Uh, there's usually very little sympathy for these people because they're deemed uh, illegal. They're crossing the border illegally. And we have suspicions about their motives, about why they're coming here. Inevitably, uh, a couple of them get severe uh, frostbite, and inevitably, uh, some of them die. And very little compassion is uh, shown to these people. Uh, this year in January, not too long ago, we had an entire family of four freeze to death uh, just over the U.S.-Canadian border near Emerson. Uh, these people were victims, human trafficking, human smuggling, and uh, there was very little to no public outcry about that. But these are the sort of nightmarish scenarios that we force people into when we have these national borders and where people are deemed legal or illegal based on the method by which they cross these invisible lines. Um, I've had people tell me to, the, to my face that in previous cases like this, there have been others, uh, that people dying or suffering severe injuries uh, due to exposure to extreme cold while trying to cross the border on foot, so-called illegally, uh, that it's their own fault. And uh, that's uh, an inhuman opinion to give, I would say. Uh, that is, there's no where really to start with how reprehensible that is. Any human being grounded in uh, reality would find that sort of opinion uh, shocking and uh, morally void. Our government could change laws to make these sorts of crossings uh, not illegal so that people wouldn't uh, die trying to cross the border on foot in the middle of winter without proper clothing. Uh, that's something that a sane democratic uh, civilization should be able to do. Uh, but we don't care about those people. Uh, we will take unlimited Ukrainian refugees, though, which I said is good, but the bare minimum. I would suggest, maybe, that race is an issue, because the people crossing the border and dying in the middle of winter uh, are black, are of African origin, for the most part, the family who froze to death on the border this January were of Indian origin, and Ukrainians are European and white, and they look very much like the rest of the people of the settler majority that is in charge of this country. I think that's an extremely uh, logical and easy connection to make, even for someone who isn't extremely politically literate. Uh, 
it also highlights the extreme blindness we have to continuing existing wars in other parts of the world that don't involve white people, the continuing occupation of Palestine, the continuing war in Yemen. Our government is sending the Saudi government uh, military equipment to fight that war. We've had U.S. airstrikes in Somalia during the same period of time that Russia has been invading Ukraine. There's very little mention of this uh, anywhere. And I I would suggest that the reason that we don't care about uh, these other wars that are still in progress is the same reason that we don't care about black people freezing to death at the border in January. It's the same reason that we don't really care about the plight of indigenous people in our own communities. A few days ago, um, the government uh, finally got around to politely asking the freedom occupation uh, stragglers at the legislature to clean up their gear, uh, which they were allowed to do. They were allowed to disassemble it by hand and move it out. At the exact same time, the government brought in bulldozers and bulldozed the indigenous sacred fire camp uh, on the legislature grounds that had been in place before the the far-right occupation since last June, I believe, which was a peaceful memorial to the many thousands of child victims of the residential school system. We're having no rallies about that. And and no provincial conservative premier and no uh, federal liberal MP would speak at such a rally. Um, And lastly, I'd have to note the presence of explicitly uh, far-right and fascist elements within the uh, within the nationalist rally last Sunday. Uh, there were men wearing UPA patches on army jackets. The UPA is a Ukrainian uh, far-right nationalist paramilitary group. You could call them white supremacists, you can call them neo-Nazis, you can call them fascists, and those would all be accurate terms. Our federal finance minister, Christy Freeland, was photographed with a banner belonging to this group uh, shortly after the Russian invasion. She claimed this was an accident, but uh, it clearly is not an accident. Google Christia Freeland's grandfather, and you'll find out perhaps why she would be supporting a fascist, a far-right paramilitary group. And people at the rally were wearing these insignias openly and without harassment. There are other groups of muscly men walking around in tank tops. It was a nice day, but it's still winter. It's still like minus, it was still like minus 10 degrees Celsius out. It was still cold. If you put aside like the ridiculousness of scowling, uh, buzz-cutted, uh, muscly men walking around in tank tops outside in the middle of winter, you'd realize that, uh, that these are the fascist street thugs that we learned about in the Freedom Convoy and Fascism episode, making an appearance at a right-wing pro-war nationalist rally. That is not a mistake. I didn't see any no to NATO signs there, but if you might have had one, you might have uh, had a conversation with uh, one of these tank top muscly men or a UPA patch man. Uh, it speaks to the need of if you're going to be promoting peace at a pro war rally, you need protection. Yes, that's right. If you're promoting peace, you do need protection, as stupid and ironic as that is. There were people there promoting peace. At several times, 
uh, a loud chant of no more war broke out and it gained power and seemed to take hold of a large part of the crowd. As that was happening, a no-fly zone chant arose almost immediately, gained power, and overtook the no more war chant. At least from where I was stationed at the back of the crowd. That's what it sounded like. And this happened several times. It was quite dramatic, I thought, and poignant, and a great example of how these forces play out. Like, this is politics in action. This is street ground level grassroots politics in action. This is really what street level democracy looks like. I hope the no more war chant won. I hope there were more no more war chants after I left, but I left before the rally ended. The point is to have more people at the rally chanting no more war than the people chanting no fly zone. No fly zone being a call for escalation of war. It may as well be a chant of uh, more war, please. This is what a united front is for. So you have more people chanting no more war at the war rally than people chanting no fly zone. Then there are fascists walking around with UPA patches and that the ridiculous muscly tank top men don't come over to have a conversation with you because there are so many more of you than there are of them. Maybe even because there are so many more of you, you can go over and have a conversation with them. A safe, civil, peaceful conversation about how they might want to consider leaving. And so that way, you can keep yourself and everyone around you safe. This is what the United Front strategy is made for. The factory defense groups that Clara Zetkin was talking about, they were meant for situations like this at their workplace. We need to form united fronts everywhere in our families, communities, and workplaces so that there will always be more of us and people working for peace than those who are calling for war. And that means war in all its forms. As we've said before, there is no war but class war. And that class war is being imposed on us from above. That's why we need a united front of all regular ordinary working people and all vulnerable people in all oppressed groups in our workplaces, families, and communities to resist being harmed by this class war, at the very least. And in time, perhaps, there will be sufficient numbers that we can start acting on behalf of ourselves to take the class war to them and fight it on a our terms, not theirs. The terms of peace, unity, human decency, kindness, and dare I say it, love. These are the things that we need to work for daily in our own lives, in our own communities, and in the world at large. I think that's a good enough place to leave it for now. Thank you for listening once again, and uh, we'll talk to you again next episode. Take care. May you be well.